recovery from self-harm, dealing with trauma, and eventually inspiring others through being authentic about our mental health. And who better to speak about this topic than somebody who has gone through all of this? Amy Minhan Corey. At only 24 years old, she has been a TEDx speaker, a touring motivational speaker. She has been signed as a singer and songwriter in Nashville. She's been a goodwill ambassador, an entrepreneur, and is currently a mindset life coach. Amy Minhan Corey is building her creative empire through her understanding and honesty in mental health and life by sharing her mindset as a coach and through her music, songwriting, public speaking, and ambassadorships. Amy has gone through a lot in her life so far and is openly sharing it with others and inspiring others to hold on to hope and to work for change. I'm so glad to have her on this episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please share it with somebody you know. I'd surely appreciate it. Or please give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening. And now let's get to the interview. Welcoming on to the Intentional Clinician, Amy Min Han Corey. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And you did a fantastic job pronouncing my name. <laughs> it's really oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't take too many tries. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. What's that? No, I was just going to say, I pr- I've pronounced it wrong for like most of my life anyway. So. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. That is interesting. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, well, let's talk about that. And also you have so, and I was reading your bio, there's so many things you've done and you're only 24. So that's really cool to me. And uh, TEDx was, um, that was one of the top things that you'd done already. And I haven't known many 24 year old TEDx speakers. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came about? It's it's honestly such an honor. I it's kind of been one of my all-time achievements that I really did do my best to work towards but didn't know how to navigate it because I've heard so many things about TEDx and this just happened to come in a an, the opportunity came because I am a Goodwill ambassador for a um, foundation called Peace and Development Foundation within Vietnam, where I was actually born and adopted from. And the president of that is the former ambassador to the EU for Vietnam and to Belgium. She She's the former ambassador. And she offered me this TED Talk to, to bring a perspective on both Vietnamese culture and American culture when it comes to the same belief of mental health and how COVID has impacted mental health around the world and coming from someone who can understand both cultures in a sense. Um, It was a really special TED Talk because I worked with her and the TEDx coordinator actually in Vietnam and got to be educated on, you know, what they see mental health as and how we both relate and how we both might, you know, think differently and how to use so many voices around the world to come together and, and let, and they allowed me to be that voice for them. So it was an amazing opportunity and I'm proud of it. Wow. That's incredible. So <laughs> I'm assuming we can just find that by putting into Google your name and TEDx and we'll find yeah. your talk. So that's really cool, especially the intercultural mixes. I know that um, uh, the United States and Europe uh, are often using the DSM and the ICD-10. And I know that um, most countries do, but I know there's a different way of viewing mental health culturally. So I think that sounds like it was a really cool opportunity for you understanding about both cultures and being able to talk about that. That sounds really awesome. Yeah, it was 
you know, I always, I've been very lucky to travel throughout my life, but to really listen firsthand of a perspective that you don't necessarily see all the time, but they do. It's very interesting to know, you know, what I have seen trauma as in the United States and around the world, but how, you know, a lot of their traumas is, you know, generational traumas and family traumas. And they're such a collective country. A lot of their traumas, you know, are collective. And so to be educated within that and to see, you know, in the sense we feel the same emotions just in different ways, but how, you know, we all felt the emotion of COVID and all the grief in COVID, it brought the two worlds in a sense together. And it was very much like no matter where you are in the world, even in Vietnam, you know, there really is no difference. We are all humans experiencing the same type of trauma. So it was a very eye-opening education and knowledge and was one that I was more than happy to, you know, keep my mouth shut and just, and just listen. I think that's a very good perspective. And I like that, uh, bringing it all together with, you know, we're all human and we're all dealing with this collective trauma of the, not only the disease, but, uh, the mental health isolation, uh, mental health issues because of isolation, um, and all the deaths. So, well, speaking of trauma and mental health, um, one of the things I really was excited to talk to you about was self-harm, as mm-hmm. I think this is a topic that isn't often discussed, but can you tell us a little bit about self-harm from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think the most um, incredible such horrific thing is that I was within self-harm for about seven years, and I experienced every kind of aspect that they're really is when it comes to self-harm. I did it because, you know, I I hated myself and I was trying to take it out of myself. And then I did it because I felt numb and I was trying to feel something. And then I actually experienced it as the addictive aspect to where I was happy. I wasn't depressed, but it became such a habit, no matter what emotions I was feeling, happy, sad, heartbroken, mad, frustrated. It was my coping mechanism for so long. And it became that habit and comfort zone on, you know, no matter what I felt, this was always here for me, whether or not it was healthy or not, it's what made me feel better. And it made me feel safe, even though it wasn't a safe way to do. And so after seven years, I have, you know, all the scars that I am now so confident and proud to, you know, show. And I'm at the stage of my recovery where I can look down and really be like, um, you know, those were the battles I lost, but I won the overall war. And there's now eight years in recovery from self-harm. And so I know the mindset and I remember it clearly like the back of my hand. And I just think it's still so misunderstood because it's not just, you know, wanting to harm yourself, not like just wanting to cut into your skin. There's so much more depth to it. And there's so much more emotion and, and loneliness to it that I think is just so misunderstood than just um, someone, you know, the pers- the negative perspective of what society thinks someone who self-harm is, is not. If you kind of look at my career and you see that I'm wearing, you know, jackets because I'm cold, I'm never trying to hide anything, you would never expect me to have done that. And, but in all, whether or not I have jackets on or when I don't have jackets on, I'm the same person. It's just more visible to see exactly, you know, what I've been through than not. And so I'm so for, you know, talking about it and saying that 
you're not alone in it and that I understand it. And yeah. Yes. I think that's a very uh, good motivational, you know, topic, especially for people that are, you know, the, the perspective you're putting on it, because it can help people feel that they're not just isolated because I think there's a lot of shame associated with self-harm and it's viewed often incorrectly because uh, like you said, there's so many different ways. Like it's a way to calm your emotions. It's a way to get emotions out. Um, then there's the, could be an addictive aspect for somebody where it's like all of a sudden it like helps them get out of a bad mindset. And so then even though it's not um, what we would consider, you know, healthy for your body, it's something that you're doing, you know? So mm -hmm. there's so many different ways. And so it's like, oftentimes our society looks for like quick answers and quick fixes. And with this one, you already just laid out that there's so many multitudinous ways to view it and ways to approach it. So um, I know recovery is different for everybody, but um, what are some things that maybe you could share that people could um, check out if they were dealing with self-harm? The thing with self-harm is I think for me personally, when I would do it, I would be in an emotional state where I, in a sense, knew exactly what I was doing, but I was not taking responsibility for it. It was always some type of blame of this person made me feel this way. This person made me feel that way. They're the reasons why I'm self-harming. And I remember when I was wanting to get better, when I, when everything started getting a little extreme and things started getting more and more dangerous, I, you know, had a dream. I had hope. I had myself as my hero in a few years and I'd worked really hard to be her. And I remember just thinking that I really want to get better and I'm not entirely sure how. And I was talking and talking and talking, but I didn't know how to communicate with other people because I didn't know how to communicate with myself. And I remember someone very close to me was saying how, you know, you have to, you have to put action to that. And he said, do you know why you're self-harming? And I was like, yeah, I just really, I can't control it. And he said that, you know, you, you do know you can always choose to do something or to do not. And it made me aware. It made me reflect that in the end, no matter what I'm feeling, I'm the one who is putting, you know, the blade or the whatever to my skin. And being conscious of that, a lot of the times I've seen, you know, with myself specifically and with others is that when you're fully conscious on something, I then realize that, okay, I consciously know that I'm doing this to myself and that if I continue doing it and something happens to me, it's no one else's fault but my own. And I don't want that responsibility. I don't want to be the blame and consciously know that I personally got myself into this. And that was a really, you know, straightforward thing someone said to me, but it was the way for my mind to kind of click in the sense of like, okay, I am responsible and I'm in control of myself. And if I'm choosing to do this, I'm going to have to face the consequences with myself. And that was something that I and my pride really didn't want to be responsible for. And it was a really more um, efficient way for me to kind of, you know, hunker down in the recovery I wanted and really, really work hard to, to, to be that. Well, wow, that is wonderful. So it sounds like <laughs> you were able to harness your 
you're you said like I want to see myself as a I want to be my own hero in five years, which is really mm-hmm. cool. Like visualizing the future, which is a huge thing to have hope. But then also saying, you know what? I can't blame anybody else for this anymore. That's that takes that's a big step of maturity. And so I think you just <laughs> described like kind of like this big moment of of growing um in mm-hmm. yourself so that you were able to then work on reducing or eliminating it. And I think about self-harm you know, people think about just cutting and pinching themselves and, um, you know, marking themselves up with pens and, um, different blunt objects and different things like that. But, um, there's so much more to it that, you know, I've heard about, you know, people don't really consider drinking alcohol in excess self-harm, but I often think about, you know, we, we call that alcoholism because you can easily become addicted to it. But I also think, geez, you know, sometimes drinking to excess to blackout, isn't that self-harm? And isn't somehow when you're upset about a relationship, people uh, get upset and want to know answers. And then they sabotage verbally or by text message or messaging the relationship they're in. And I feel like while that isn't directly harming your body, I mean, well, I guess alcohol would be, but it's not putting a mark on your body. It's still kind of engaging in self-harm. And it's like that idea of taking responsibility, I think is difficult for a lot of people because when you've been in trauma or if you've been hurt, we often feel like it's not fair. You know, Mm -hmm. we feel like it's not fair. So how do we then take responsibility for our actions? Even if what happened to us wasn't fair, or even if it wasn't fair that we inherited depression or an anxiety disorder or something like that, you know, if it's, if it's more genetic, uh, in origin. So I think that's a really cool story. Um, and I also like the way you talk about it. I think, expressing um expression of these things is so so important and I, I think that's why i'm glad you're talking about it today on this podcast is because i i do think we're in a revolution of authenticity in our culture of just talking about everything um i just remember even 20 years ago people not shying away from different subjects and now one of the most in-demand therapies are couples therapists and sex therapists and yeah you know, people talking about drugs and alcohol and um, talking about, and, you know, you're talking about self-harm and people being open about depression and anxiety journeys. So I think it's very um, uniting when, when you hear people are brave enough to talk about it because Absolutely. it brings people out of the shadows. So yeah, um, feel free to elaborate on that. Anything Thank you. you I mean, I, I totally agree. And that was, that was why when I was, so I think one of the most interesting things about me going through, you know, the self-harm and the eating disorder and the depression is it was very, very young for me. I was about nine when everything started and I started going into recovery when I was about 16. And so as I was growing physically, I was growing mentally in a sense, because I was going through all this trauma that really grew my mind. So for me to say I'm eight years in recovery and only being 24, it's, it's, it's very, um, it's an interesting way of, not only growth physically, but growth mentally and growth emotionally. And through all of that, it very much made me kind of this kind of older self. But the sense that during all of that, there wasn't anyone talking about it. There wasn't really anyone going through it and being open or was allowed to be open. And so that's why I had to make my own hero myself in 10 years to know that someone will eventually be talking about this. And, you know, that's going to be me. But to be that person, I have to get better within myself first. And you have to be your best self first to deliver your best self. 
And it was a very kind of strict thing that I really had to hunker down and be like, okay, you know, if it's, if it's going to be anyone, you know, I, I hope it's everyone. And I'm very happy. Like you said, that so many people are now open to it, but it's been kind of that whole thing. And then when I moved to Nashville and started and was, and got signed to be a singer, this aspect was my main brand was talking about it and, and in PR about it and just really nailed it, which kind of took that whole sense of like, okay, I love singing. I love writing, but I really want to do so much more with it. And that kind of led me on to other things because one, like three minutes was not enough to tell the whole story, but you know, even I felt like I was, you know, I had to be contained in a sense with what, you know, the music industry thought of what society still thought. And I was like, you know what, you know, I'm, so thankful in a sense, being out of it, seeing how it got me in life and how, you know, happy I am on knowing what true unhappiness is. It lets you know that this can't be what life is. And so you not only want happiness, but then you are then able to create it and you recognize, you know, what true happiness is because you know, true unhappiness. So it helps you actually maintain it as well. And just knowing the difference between those really just made me, you know, see how thankful I am and see how, you know, not just if I could do it, anyone can do it. And to help people, you know, I know in the end, especially going through what I did, and this is what I would always say when I did, when I was touring and public speaking before COVID, is that I remember people telling me to get over stuff in 24 hours. I remember public speakers coming in and saying things that honestly made me worse in the end is going to be up to the person, but it, it always helps when someone else is able to show that it's possible instead of just telling someone it's possible. And that's kind of been my biggest drive in my career and just who I am as a person is that as long as I continue showing and continue helping people understand that it's possible that's all that I can do is ignite that light and then they can take it and put it in their own lives and do something even better than what I did. But that's their journey and that's them. I can only help guide them through that. But to see so many people doing that now, it's honestly fulfilling and it's heartwarming. And you're kind of like, yes, like you always knew these people were out there and now so many people are open about it. It's honestly amazing. It really is. Yes. And I think, um, you know, just being authentic and honest, especially now, you know, in your music career, um, I remember a time when it wasn't just in my lifetime. I don't think many artists were talking about their problems or personal things. They were just yeah. putting out their art. And there's so many terrible, tragic stories we can talk about of artists who never dealt with their mental health and, you know, committed suicide or did a drug overdose or something like that. But um, I think that's huge. You know, I, I don't know. It sounds like you're just sort of new to the music industry, but you're already leading with this story and uh, telling the honest truth about your life. And I think that's really awesome. Thank um, you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was curious about, uh, we've mentioned trauma a few times and um, partly the reason I bring this up is because I'm a trauma therapist. And I think sometimes um, the uh, some of the reasons people don't feel inspired and hopeful is the many multitudes, such as they don't think other people are going through it. So there's that, which we've been mm -hmm. talking about, but they also somehow, because of a traumatic experience or, a, or, or something like that, they, 
they, or even if maybe they were just cutting themselves or something, they feel that now they are somehow black and white labeled as bad, or there's something wrong with them. And so then they, they shut down and they don't take the steps forward Mm -hmm. to try to start a new um, mental health chapter or get help or something like that. I, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit about well, you said you've been eight years in recovery now, but you said it started when you were nine until 16. So I was just curious if you could maybe discuss a little bit about the struggle or the journey of the, you know, cause I'm assuming you put in some hard work there, you know, yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really hard work there. Obviously, you know, I, I had a very, you know, interesting path to, my recovery, you know, when I decided I wanted to get better and then was, you know, in and out, you know, I failed a lot and I relapsed a lot at the beginning. And during that time, and then I had that discussion on, you know, I'm choosing to do this. And I kept trying and trying and trying. And I kept seeing as I tried how in the end, you know, I'm still here. And I really had that purpose sense. I'm like, if I if I really was supposed to not make it like, look where I am now. I kept saying, you know, you know, this is where I've come from. This is where I am. And I didn't come this far just to come this far. And it was really that big hope thing. And within about six, it was seven, eight months of my full recovery. My mom actually passed away from cancer, which was kind of that big test on, you know, am I really who I really want to be? who my mom really knew I was always going to be. And I'm really proud to say that I made it through in like coping with her death and grief in a very kind of healthy way that, you know, you do your best to grieve in, but it did not include self-harm. It did not include starving myself or throwing up or being depression. I knew that by then, okay, if I was able to make it through my mom's death without self-harming, I could make it through whatever came to me now. And that's when I moved a few years later, moved to Nashville. And I was signed by a, by a producer who is Dolly Parton's producer. And I was like, you know what? I was thinking that same thing. Like I have scars all over my body for so long. I thought that, you know, I was not going to be worth anything. No one was going to take me seriously, but here I am not only in my growth and my life on continue making it, but that I can be a public figure. I can be taken pictured of with my scars and have people actually admire it instead of bring me down. And in the end, that has nothing to do with me. That's just an opinion. And I really got that really sense of, you know, self, you know, this is the way I am. This is how it is in a sense to where this happened to me. It was really awful, but look where I am now and look what I've made it through and continuously knowing that, okay, there's still more, like, it's not just the end. And that includes both good and bad things. Um, I will not, you know, nowadays being out of it, you know, waste my time on trying to stop life. You know, now I'm just where I am now living life. And when you live life, life really happens to you. But instead of letting it down, you navigate it and you get better and better and better. And I think after so many years of that trauma, I kept seeing that, you know, I can make things better because I can 
not control what's going on, but I can control my reaction. I control how I transform and I grow and you grow through what you go through. And I really hunkered that mindset. And that's kind of what changed everything was that mindset that, um, yeah, it, it's, it's possible. And it's so worth to live through the bad times to experience then the great times after. I like how you talk about good and bad times, because I do think that a lot of people think, you know, well, when I'm over my depression or I'm over my anxiety and I'm over this trauma, it's like, it's not like you're a robot, you know, you're going to have hard times again and you're not going to be perfect. And I always like that phrase, which is relapse is always on the road of recovery, because if you just quit doing something and you never accidentally slip up again, you may not, you know, you may not, you may be not living. You may be like pulling yourself away and, and, and not live, uh, listening to your emotions or taking risks and, um, letting your mind, you know, not that we want to relapse, but hopefully every relapse is a little bit less than the one before. Um, and I also like this living life in the present. I think that takes a lot of guts to live life in the present uh, and really try to be present while acknowledging all, you know, the difficulties you went through, like losing your mother when you're a teenager is like a huge, huge um, difficulty. Um, mm-hmm. And in an interesting way, it seems to have made you stronger after going through it. Yeah, um, and I sure. think that that was because of how you decided, you know, you decided at some point to honor your mother and you know, do something different and not let this bring you back to the difficulty, difficult times you went through. So I like that you have this really positive message of hope. And I think it really is what makes the difference in um, mental health recovery, whether it's through counseling or different types of healing. A big part of it is the belief that you can get better and that you can do better. Um, and you can, but yes, the realistic view is also, you're going to face adversity and that's the maturity because there's always a part of us that wishes we weren't going to face adversity, but if we go on worrying about it, then we'll be paralyzed. We're going to face it. Everybody. My main quote that I just so live by is the world doesn't get better. You just do. And that's something I've said my entire career. And it's kind of my main stamp now is that, um, yeah, it's it's honestly you. You can overcome anything you want. And looking back in my life, everything I've been through and where I am now, I just know that it's so possible for everyone. And there's nothing more than I want for them to know how worth they are to live both aspects of life. And overall, enjoy in a sense everything because everything is to, in the end, your benefit of growing, learning, transforming, and becoming better. And accepting that there is always room and there's always space to get better as a person to continue growing because that's what life in the end is all about. It's really hard, and you don't want things in a sense, yes, I don't want things to continue happening to me, but. I can't control it. (laughs) All I control is how I'm going to navigate through it and see in a sense of, instead of asking, why is this happening to me? Kind of putting it as, what is this trying to teach me? 
and really kind of just continuously living with that in mind and knowing that in the end, I'm going to get the answers that I need, but I have to do some type of work to get it. And yeah, it's, 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 it can be exhausting, but the results are so worth it because life is so worth it. Yes, indeed. I really like your philosophy. It reminds <laughs> me of a, a quote by Rumi, who's this poet from mm -hmm. like a thousand years ago. <laughs> Yesterday, I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today, I am wise, so I'm changing myself. And I, I love that one. I, I love that one too. And it, <laughs> and it leads me right into, of course, Gandhi, of course, saying, be the change you want to see in the world because mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's so interesting to me and our culture right now, how people get so into... I, I'm glad people are into politics, the ones that are actually going and doing something, you know, and like going to the public city meetings yeah. and going to the government and writing letters. That's cool. But what I mean yeah. is there's a bunch of armchair people. I call them, you know, like armchair football fans. Like, oh, what are you doing, guy on the field? I could have done it better. It's like, well, not really. You're sitting here with potato chips. So it's like yeah. the uh, the people that comment on politics and that are just so angry every day, but they've never written their senator or gone to a public meeting. And it's like, you're trying to, you want the world to change, but because of that, you're so angry and frustrated and annoyed and anxious and depressed because the world won't change. So if you, if you worked on your own self and helped the people around you, and then maybe found a way to get involved in one of these issues that you're so passionate about, I think actually things might change. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think that's uh, that's wisdom in action. It also reminds me of, you know, one of the people that is one of the most odd um, I don't know, good examples I can think of, of being honest about their mental health is Russell Brand. Um, from I England. love him. Yeah. I love him so much. <laughs> He's so great. I, I literally like years ago, years ago, I think this is like 2004 or five. I couldn't stand him. He was so arrogant <laughs> and mean. Well, then I found out later, you know, he's so open about his recovery from heroin and drugs and all these addictions he went through and his mental health as a child. And, He's so inspiring. He's got a Instagram where he'll one episode he'll go off on um, himself and personal recovery and inspiring people. In the next episode, he'll be like ranting about something. In the next episode, he's meditating. I don't know. He's he literally has is just go, he he is the biggest open book I've ever heard. I mean, he told he said that when he recovered from heroin, he was pretty deep into it, and he said that for the next six or seven years, at least once a day, he would think of heroin. <laughs> which i was like whoa i've never heard someone admit that and he was like yeah i thought of it it didn't mean i did yeah. it i, I yeah. thought about it and, th and then i went through my steps and he thought about how bad it would be if he did it and what would happen and all the repercussions and and he was able to think himself through it and kind of get his emotions back intact but i feel like it's so interesting i, I love him because he he went from being this like bad boy that everyone didn't like to being this like nice guy and he's only what is he? 40, 46, I think right now. And he's, I mean, that's relatively young. So I, I think he's inspiring us and I could see you taking his example. Um, or, or maybe you said you loved him. So you, you but uh, you know, other celebrities as well, kind of just leading this. And I think that's what helps change the culture. I mean, us therapists have been sitting here. I've been a therapist since 2007, you know, beating the drum. Come on, everybody. It's not just yeah. about when you're in crisis, you could come in for prevention and you could work on this and it'll make you better at your job and your marriage and your relationships and your, with your kids. And if you just, even if you just, you know, go to six sessions a year, you know, it'll help, you know, and, yeah. and people are like, oh no, that's for crazy people. We can't do that. <laughs> and now the whole culture has shifted and changed where 
even in the government, somebody fought for mental health parity, which means that mental health is a uh, mental health diagnosis is given the same level of seriousness as a broken ankle or a leg, obviously, you know, depending on the level of severity. Um, but that's changed the culture. And I think the celebrities and people with the platform being honest and being authentic about their journey is changing it. And then that then hopefully will trickle down to folks who don't have a platform who are just in their daily communities and they do have an influence circle and that influence circle hopefully will include their schools because one of my biggest passions is um one of my i guess passions that i haven't been able to really enact yet is why don't we have mental health education in every school for like a class like every year you take a class on mental health and relationships and yeah. you know all those things i don't know why we have yeah. no, we have nothing i mean some schools have it, mindful schools I, and yeah and i teachers, i but. i agree i before um 2020 for covid i toured schools for motivational speaking and i when i first started i i did a niche tour on tours that are schools that you could only could only pay like the tiniest bit amount, but who still needed the same type of um, motivation as a D1 school. And I really saw within that time, like you were saying, like how much they need to do a curricular investment within mental health, within awareness, especially with COVID. And, you know, my younger sister, she's still in college and she tells me these stories of like, you know, kids committing suicide or like, you know, all the trauma everyone is going through, especially with, you know, being so isolated. It it's it's heartbreaking to me in a sense. And it it's so hard to know that and accept that it's going to take so long for them to change, but you hope and you hope and you hope that in the end, the districts, the principals, they do really, and I'm not saying they don't, but to put that type of investment for their kids, for their kids' minds, and know that there are more ways to help a child through school than just the type of education that we, you know, grew up on. And I think I feel very lucky to have gone to a high school. I grew up in Oregon. And so I went to a high school that was so life oriented, like school was, you know, whatever, but the type of life lessons I learned from, you know, my time in high school, things that, you know, my teacher would would say, they'd be arrested if they said it here in the South, like, they were able to just be so open and free and let us know that we have a voice, our opinions matter. And in the end, all of us in, put aside our education matter. I never went to high, I never went to college. Like I went straight from high school to the music industry and to where I am now. And I take, I'm taking a, a course on life coaching, but I've been able to make it this far. And because they made me believe that in the end, myself and my work ethic um, was what mattered and my how honest I was and how you know to never go into a fight unless you know everything fighting for but know that you're worthy to take that fight even if you don't have a full education in something and seeing that high school aspect was something I really wanted to bring into these other high schools and something I just you know kept hoping and hoping and hoping and I still hope will 
become, you know, the future in a sense. And, you know, what better time to start than now, you know? <laughs> I agree. I mean, uh, I mean, not that I wasn't even planning on this podcast going into education, but I have an education <laughs> degree and mm-hmm. I could just see that to engage kids, it can't just be rote learning and testing. I mean, yeah. first of all, and it can't just be like a PE class. Like, um, I don't know how many studies have shown that doing music every day and doing movement every day help the kids be able to calm down and get some of their energy out so they can focus better. I mean, that hardly happens anywhere. Um, talking about real life stuff like your school did. I mean, that's so cool. Like I didn't, I mean, my school was quite <laughs> exceptional. My teachers were exceptional as people, but they were still like, okay, well, I have this curriculum and I have these expectations and I've got to teach you about this history and this math. And that's important. But mm-hmm. what, that doesn't make a good citizen. <laughs> you know what I mean? A good citizen needs well-rounded, um, not just being intellectual. And I think that's something that our uh, collective country and world is learning is it's not just about information and it's uh, not just about whatever cultural programming you want to bring into it. It's about how do we make people that value each other, where they live, the world, the environment, the work they do. How do we do that? Well, it's it's going to take some radical changes, especially for children because they go to school. And that's where they learn most things and then at home. So um, I love that, that we got into that. And I think that's yeah. really cool that you were able to do that. and um and learn so much at that level and going just already just going further and further and further in your career. So I wanted to ask you about a couple other things. Um, I wanted to ask you about, well, you've talked a little bit about talked, you talked about TEDx and your touring motivational speaker and you're working on your um, mindset coach uh, class right now. But I I was curious, can you tell us a little about your uh, experience in the songwriting world? In the music world. <laughs> it was probably the funnest time of my life. I was, I, I still consider myself in the sense in the music industry. Um, I was in it. I, so I took vocal lessons for 10 years um, from a guy who was taught by another guy who made Michael Jackson, CB Wonder. And then when I was 18, I, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And um, I, at the time was like the only Asian person who wanted to be a country singer and I knew how hard it was going to be I took it in full swing I had you know I was Asian I had scars I was just but I was so confident and happy in myself and I wanted to learn I didn't come in thinking I knew anything the only thing I knew I could do is that if I was put on the spot I knew I could sing really well and so I got in with the songwriting community which is kind of where I was hanging out a lot and I would do songwriter nights, like the open mics and the ride around seven days a week for about a year. And I got in with a lot of amazing songwriters who are still, you know, my best friends and people who wrote for, you know, Tim McGraw and Brad Paisley and um, Blake Shelton and all those people. And it led me to um, my artist developer, who then became my manager, who then became, you know, obviously a good friend of mine. And he is um, Dolly Parton's producer. And he signed me into artist development when I was 19. And so, you know, it was a perfect time too, because I was out and in my recovery for so long. And now I had a reason to stay in it. You know, I was put very quickly 
in a platform, in a reputation, in a brand that really needed me to be my best self and to not fake it because I, above anyone, are like the number one thing I'm bad at is lying. <laughs> and, and sometimes it became a problem. Like if I wasn't feeling good, they, you know, we would have to cancel because I was not good at, you know, if I was having a bad day, I would be, I would be honest about it. And that's just kind of how I was, um, how I became. And so I was really, really into the singing, the songwriting I wrote about, I wrote all my own songs. I wrote my stories in it, but I was told in a sense that because of my ethnicity and because of, um, my trauma, you know, I was going to have to be more than a singer and a songwriter. I was really going to have to get attention in a lot of ways to be able to build my name up. And so I got really into business. I got really into um, television. I got really into kind of the more business sense. I would go to nutritional, you know, corporation companies. And I met, you know, Gary Vee and Dr. Oz through that. And I would do, I, I got, became friends with a lot of Food Network chefs and um, kind of just got my name and message around everyone. And I kind of saw how no matter what industry you're in, in a sense, everyone is still one human and everyone seems to admire and want to hear more about my story, whether it was in music, whether it was in talking, whether it was in TV. And it really kind of expanded this idea on how, you know, it doesn't matter how I'm telling my story as long as it's in a sense told um, and in the end, it's not even about telling my life story. It's about listening to everyone else's story and helping them through my story. And so with music, I felt like I couldn't do that because I was hogging the mic 24 seven and I was singing songs, trying to have people relate to me. And then when I started public speaking, I realized that it was so much more fulfilling and so much more special to me to listen to what they wanted to hear and being able to relate to them instead of making them be relate to me. And so singing was the perfect bones and platform, especially having um, Dolly's name attached at the time to really build myself up to be able to kind of take my own brand and self-manage it in a sense to where I am now. And to do the TED TEDx talk was a big validation that I I, I really learned in the time I was in the industry to be able to handle it myself and to be able to have, you know, no filter. And I went through a lot of PR, you know, classes and reps to know what is acceptable, how to present myself and how to kind of keep, you know, calm while how to communicate. And I really took that to heart with my story, with my growth and just who I am as a person. I'm a very calmer person in general and being able to take that and just soar with it. So I always nod my head off to my time in the music industry because it taught me a lot about myself. And in the end, it taught me that um, in, I'm the one who cares the most about myself. Um, my team was very supportive in my recovery, but you know, if I didn't eat, they didn't really care because that's what the music industry standard is. And so it really made me recognize how aware I have to be when I feel like I'm becoming not myself or I'm becoming, um, a little bit on edge. And that was kind of 
where I really, really grew in a sense into my adult life is knowing that I'm going to have to always put myself first because in the end, whether it's my career, whether it's my health, whether it's just me in general, I'm the one who truly cares about that. And people can be affected by it, but no one's going to be affected more than me. And that was a big, big thing I learned being in the music industry. (laughs) I think that's a really good lesson and good mindset. And I also see that it's interesting that you, I, I like this trait about you. It reminds me of how I've tried to live is that you just kind of go and talk to everybody and yeah. you're not afraid of people just because they might have a title or something like that and just see if they're open to talk to you, see if there's anything you can work together on. And it sounds like that's how you've been really, you know, expanding your reach in all the things that you're involved in. Um, and I was... I was also curious, uh, just because you've got such a lot of rich experience, are you okay telling us a little bit about your Goodwill Ambassador? I mean, you previewed it at the beginning, but can you tell me a little just about about that and how that is? So that is something I never kind of expected to do. I was born and adopted from Vietnam. And the first time I ever went back was in 2019. I actually went on tour in my music. And I hired a booking agent who is now a really good friend of mine there. And we went on tour in Saigon, which is Ho Chi Minh City. And I was on Vietnamese radio. I did a bunch of shows. And I met the most amazing woman. Um, Her name is Yoon, um, Ji Yoon. And she is the assistant of Madame Nin, who is the former ambassador to the EU, Um, and Belgium. And it was just a kind of crazy thing. And I learned a lot about what they did on how they are promoting peace. They're promoting kind of the new age of Vietnam and doing the same thing that I'm doing in a sense of accepting their past, because Vietnam does have a big past, accepting the past and becoming better from it, you know? And so it was an entirely different way of using your story to inspire and change and transform and show in all kindness and compassion. And I just loved that. I really did. And they were supported, they were supported by UNICEF and the government and this and that. And so I actually was invited. I was personally asked by Madame Nin to become their fourth um, goodwill ambassador and the first American to to be able to do it. And so I have done some speaking engagements with them. They have a thing around Tet, which is Vietnamese Lunar New Year, which actually just happened um, and did, has done stuff with them. I have incorporated them into my charities. And then I also through them um, actually got in touch with um, Saigon Children and is sponsoring a child this year to make sure he gets his education. Um, And so I've been able to do so many things with them. And um, in 2020, they actually got me um, accepted to come back into the country during COVID. But I was in London at the time and got stuck in London because we were on a really tight lockdown. And so I didn't get to go back to Vietnam, but I'm hoping to go this year. Um, But I've just been able to see, like I said, what another perspective of mental health and trauma, because there's some things that you don't even realize. I feel, and from my own belief, my own personal experiences, trauma, sometimes in America, I'm not saying all, but sometimes trauma is a choice. 
Um, and seeing trauma in Vietnam, how a lot of it has to do with poverty. A lot of it has to do with things that they can't control in a sense. They don't have the choice to, you know, be happy in a sense. They're, they have the choice to be happy, but it's a lot harder for them to make that choice as easily as some of us are able to have that privilege of doing in America. And not saying that's every story, not saying that's every case, but to be able to open my perspective that that is a thing, you know, it's a thing in the world, but until you actually see it, you're kind of one to not truly see it because we listen with our eyes. And so being in this ambassadorship has really shown me that this is out there and it needs as much as attention as we do in the States and mental health there is still very new. COVID has really brought attention to it. But like I was saying, they think in a sense that the whole country has been through so much trauma. There really shouldn't be individual trauma. Um, and so that's something that they're working so hard and changing because so many people through COVID and isolation, they were on lockdown for like four months in tw from 2020 to 2021. Um, and they're really seeing it with social media these days and this and that, that this is something they need to pay attention to. And they have, and it's amazing to see. And um, I'm not within the government, but I have some ties in it to where I can really see, you know, where it's going and where they want to go. And they're so inspiring to me and their mindset is so, it's crazy to me during the TEDx talk, actually, when we were writing the script, um, I was saying at the end how, you know, you need, you should choose this way because it's going to be the best way for themselves. And my TEDx curator was like, no, you have to tell them this is the only way to do it. And I said, I respect that, but a lot of people in America <laughs> won't like me saying that. And she's like, yes, but in Vietnam, it's in a sense that easy. And that really kind of changed to be like, they really do care about each other in a sense to where someone will change themselves to help another person. And that is so inspiring to me to see that type of ripple effect, but to have that ripple effect come so naturally because you just want to do the best thing for yourself, which in all will be the best thing for everyone else. And it's honestly so inspiring to me even today to think about specific things and being like, you know what, I've learned from these people and this is something that I want to bring to America. Everyone thinks in a sense America has all the answers and a lot of the times they do, but sometimes if we're open-minded to other cultures, they have a lot of answers as well. <laughs> I agree. And um, I think- Sorry, that, I know that was a lot oh, of Oh no, talking. that was good. I, there, was a lot, there was a lot in there. I, I liked it. I think I love that experience that you've had and now you're still in touch with- um, the people in Vietnam and being able to kind of see both sides. And yeah, with trauma, you know, there's so many layers I've written. I wrote like almost, a, I think it adds up to like 20 pages on my website about the trauma informed counseling center of Grand Rapids that I'm the clinical director of. And I talk about all these types of traumas and I believe in there, there's something I need to add, which is um, I, I had a little bit of it, but like collective trauma versus individual trauma. And there's so many different types of traumas. Like you said, in the U S we have, 
compared to many countries, especially maybe Vietnam, uh, which I'm not too familiar with, but you, you are, like you said, there's not as many mental health options. And so that mental health options almost have to be collective where here we have the ability, not everybody, but a lot of people have the ability to get a therapist. And now Medicaid in many States has made therapy free. If you don't have any money to get therapy as well, because we, we, you know, we see the individual going through there that makes a better community. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a place with almost no therapists or very few, you have to figure out community interventions. Right. But on the same level, I think the U S could take from that because I do think, and I've said this for years that we lack community mental health exercises that are agreed upon and collective, you know, we're very, very much in our own little silos and that leads to loneliness and leads to isolation even before COVID. And, and that isolation and, and, uh, and not really having a positive focus as a community. I mean, there's countless research studies and anecdotal evidence that that is just very harmful for humans in general, and it's not good. So we have to, we, like, we almost have to make the choice. Like, I mean, just think about, I I could think about the pot. I mean, there's definitely challenges, but the positive mental health effects of you going to all these really cool open mics and like meeting all these people. Like I I used to do that as well. Like um, probably not seven nights a week, but, but I I was going, you know, going three nights a week, probably to different open mics when I was in college and, and different um, activities when I was in grad school like that. And it's just so wonderful to just see people come out there and present their poetry or their song or whatever it was. And, um, you know, I think that's hopefully something that will be coming back as, um, hopefully COVID is starting to, um, dissipate into a lesser disease. We'll see. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, people can kind of get together, but I think being online, you know, isn't the best, but it's way better than nothing. Right. It's way better than just consuming news or a movie. So I love that you're really involved in so many things. And I can see that you have this sort of philosophy that's kind of going through all of it, this positive, like, and this honesty about going through things and not letting it stop your story, not letting it ruin your, you know, it's like, yeah, these things could quote unquote ruin my life. Right. But I'm still living the rest of my life. So am I going to live a life that is ruined or am I going to try to accept it and do something with it? Is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing, yes, I'm seeing you inspire others by being honest about your mental health journey, plus your personal life journey. Um, since this is a mental health kind of philosophy podcast, we'll talk about it all kind of rings together. Um, so I think this has been so awesome, but I, I have to ask a question since, you know, you've got so many things you're involved in. What, what are some of the things that are next for Amy? What, what is, what is oh Amy getting into now? If, if you can preview, I know that you're under <laughs> contracts for certain things, but if you could like, preview. Yeah, some no, I'm so excited. Um, this life coaching and mindset coaching thing has been a very big dream of mine. And I am now, I, I, I launched it last year and I got a lot of feedback of um, people wanting the type of content I was delivering, but wasn't ready to fully immerse themselves into life coaching. And so I evolved my brand. It's called The Misunderstood Mindset. And I evolved it to where I am about to release a website where there will be a monthly membership and a yearly membership. And you get the content. You get, you know... <laughs> You get you get a lot of content that I share a lot in my life coaching, but there's also you know like recipes and um, coping mechanisms. And I'm bringing I want to create a community, a safe community, an understanding community. I'm inviting people that have been 
um, you know, in, in my past. And I would love if you would make a video too, of just a community of feeling safe and feeling understood. And it's a place for you to not only be you, but for you to become you. And I think that's the biggest thing is that the number one thing I've always said is I am not my mental health trauma. I am me. And those are the things that just have happened to me, but I am not them. And it's a big sense of, you know, in the end, you are going to be you, but you can also become who you truly are meant to become. And through this is all happening. So that is super exciting to me. I am so thrilled that comes out um, on the 22nd. And then I'm also hoping to get back into schools this year. It's been a very tough journey, as we've talked about with the education system. But um, that is, above all, my biggest passion is um, motivational speaking within schools. So that's really exciting. And I am going back to Vietnam this year. And so I'm not entirely sure what's to happen, but a lot of things with the ambassadorship and maybe even a return in my music aspect <laughs> will be there too. So there's always, there's always something happening. I think the biggest thing right now is this new website and the life coaching, but um, you honestly never know. And a lot of things, good and bad, come to me. I feel like when you're on the right path, it's just so easy for things to be attracted in that sense. And so you honestly never know this. Like I said, the TEDx thing came out of the middle of nowhere. So <laughs> honestly, I don't know what else can, um, but I'm just thankful for it all. And I'm so excited. And in all, everything I do is just for to help other people. So that's my main goal. And that's whatever, wherever that leads me to, I'm going to follow it with, my whole self and passion. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually excited to uh, help people get in touch with you. What are some ways that people can get in touch with you? Because actually, if your website's coming out on the 22nd, that means uh, that might correspond right around to when this episode will be oh released. Oh my goodness. So, it's um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, I'm wondering what are, I, I will put in the links in the show notes, how to get a Thank hold you. of uh, Amy and maybe her new website. Well, her new website will definitely be in the notes by the time this is released. Uh, so that'll be very exciting, uh, for everybody. Um, and I, I'm really, uh, struck by your passion for speaking to children in schools. I think that is so awesome. Um, I have an idea for you because I've often thought motivational speaking was cool because when I had motivational speakers come to my school, probably once or twice a year, I was like the best day of the entire school that, you know, that were, I was like, this is so cool. We get to go hear this really cool story and everyone's pumped up and it like kind of inspired you for weeks to come. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe, I mean, this is what you might have to do is develop a seven day curriculum for, for schools. I'm just throwing that out there. That might be, I, you know time. what? I love <laughs> the way you think because we are, we are already, <laughs> already thinking that too. Um, that's, that's something that has very much been in conversation um, as well. And so I, I appreciate your thought in it too, because I, I hope, like I said, no matter what I put in, I just hope in a sense that they can see that in the end, it's all about helping, helping the kids. Um, because the reactions of, of like that and the messages, not only from the kids, but from their parents too, um, means the world. And so that's something that not only, I inspire them, but they truly inspire me too. And that's so important to me. 
So I appreciate that. I, 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 I'm keeping that and putting it in my pocket. <laughs> yes. I think it would be great to have a Amy's, Amy's curriculum for the yeah. next week or next week and a half, yeah. <laughs> a couple hours a day and the motivational speaking. So yeah. cool. Well, I'm going to definitely have all that information available. Is there anything you wanted to say uh, to the listeners um, before we kind of sign off here? Any um, parting words? Honestly, like the, just the fact that you are listening to this, your amazing podcast just shows how much life you know is still out there and how worth it it is to live it, to find out what that is. And that means so much to, I think, both of us. And we hope it means a lot to you too, because you're worth it. You deserve it. And the type of life that you think you are meant to live is so much more than what you expect. And just because things are unknown, it doesn't mean that it's bad. So just live it, find out, and also know that you can create it. So whatever you want, you can truly have. And I truly believe that. I, I, I truly do. So keep going. <laughs> I love it. And I am inspired as well. So thank, thank you. you, Amy, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having and allowing me to. And I guess that's why I still wake up every morning, but instead of living, just trying to get by. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. As you may have known, I have released a video course for parents of young adults. What should we do now? It is available on Udemy, which is a course website. The link will be in the show notes. If you are looking for an EMDR, International Association Consultant, I am now an Emdria Consultant, and I can provide all of the 20 hours needed to become Emdria certified. I have current Emdria consultation groups going on online and some individual appointments in person. Check out the link in the show notes for details. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting healthforlifegr.com. That's healthforlifegr.com. And thanks to telehealth, if you are in the state of Michigan, you can see the counselors online as well. If you are looking to be trained in EMDR therapy and have never even gone through the original training, I recommend EMDR Training Solutions. The links are in the show notes, and if you use the code INTENTIONAL, you will get $100 off your first training. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based upon the literature they have read in their experience in their respective fields, Whatever is said on this podcast should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on this or any other subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in crisis, please dial 911 right now or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color feeling down, stressed out, or overwhelmed? Text the word STEVE, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741, that's 741741, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know that you could support your local bookstore by shopping at bookshop.org? That's right, you can order online from the comfort of your home while knowing that your purchase will go to supporting local bookstores independently owned 
ones near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your professional association, I highly recommend that you get involved. It's only a couple hundred dollars a year for the dues, which help pay for the legal costs and other trainings that us therapists need to make sure that our profession is continued to be respected and available to the public. For instance, the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association is a great organization that I highly recommend in Michigan and the Arizona Counselors Association in Arizona. Until next time, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. Cause I never felt so scared And there's something in the air That follows me everywhere Shadows falling, voices calling Whisper welcome home from back in time Sometimes I swear I won't be